I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Women are the key to peace and they are a key to unlocking the end of the crisis that we're seeing. I really, really believe that if we can get enough women interested in this issue and combating it either as lawyers but also as engineers and you know people who come up with incredible innovations educators i think women have a central role to play and they should feel confident and proud to play that role i say it's the fire in my eyes the flash of my teeth the swing in my waist the joy in my feet i'm a woman phenomenally Maria Cristina Duval is a climate and human rights lawyer. Her client is the earth, and she's devoted to the protection of it. She's the director of climate and energy for the organization Clients Earth. Currently, she's overseeing the energy and fossil fuel infrastructure, as well as the agriculture program in Asia and the United States. Her job is to make sure that the governments and companies that have a negative impact on the climate are held accountable for it. Prior to Client Earth, Maria Cristina advised the New Zealand government on the economic and social impacts on climate and environmental policy. She spent 10 years in private practice in Paris, London and Hong Kong, advising clients on international arbitration, international law, international human rights and constitutional law. She has also worked on several international organizations on women's economic empowerment and economic development. In today's interview, we will be discussing the work it takes to operate as a solicitor for Mother Earth and how this extends to the protection of women's rights. Brought to you on International Women's Day, welcome Maria Cristina Duval. Thank you so much for having me today. Fjord, I thought it would be really fruitful if we could start by having you summarize what it is you do with Client Earth for us to understand what your focus is right now. Absolutely. Very happy to. So I joined Client Earth two years ago from the New Zealand government, where I'd been advising on climate and energy policy, and I joined to become head of climate. We have a climate team which is based in Europe in several of our um, European offices, which works on climate finance and climate accountability. So I was initially brought in to lead and work with this amazing um, group of lawyers on on these issues. Very, very lucky to, to join two years ago. And then a few months in, I became director of climate and energy. And that means that my portfolio is slightly broader now. I oversee all of our climate and energy work from the United States to Asia. That includes a broader portfolio of work where we use different legal tools to achieve our impact. And I also oversee our agriculture portfolio, which is mainly based in Europe at the moment. Okay. Could you quickly go into the areas of climate work that it is you're doing? I know notably it's climate accountability, agriculture, mm-hmm. fossil fuel, climate finance, and clean energy. Mm-hmm. What is the general scope of what you're overseeing within over these areas? So on what we call climate within Client Earth, there are probably three different areas that I can outline. One is what we call state accountability. So rendering 
sovereign nation states accountable for their emissions trajectories to 2050. And for that, what we've been doing over a number of years is to litigate against those states. So making those states responsible for the lack of improvement, really, in um, tackling climate change emissions within their own borders. At the moment, we are suing the Polish state on behalf of five Polish citizens for inaction on climate change. We also recently launched a case in the UK challenging the government's net zero strategy. So that's just a couple of examples of what we do in what we call the state accountability arena. We also work to hold corporates accountable. Mm. And we've been doing a lot of work over the last few years determining what directors of companies, what kinds of duties they have with respect to climate change. So rather than talking about climate change as an environmental risk, we've started to talk about it as a financial and economic risk that directors of companies need to take into account really as any risk they would as business leaders. Mm. And what we're seeing today is despite a lot of net zero pledges, we are not actually seeing directors taking these duties seriously as they should and as they are required to by law. So that's a second area in which we work. And how do they react differently to the climate finance aspect? Is that a question of direct attack to the company and therefore they act? What we're trying to do in climate finance is a bit of a mix of a few things that we do within client earth. So with with corporate accountability, what we've tried to do over the last few years is really build the case under the law that there actually is today in legal frameworks a legal duty for directors to act on climate change and to consider and measure and manage that risk. With climate finance, what we're trying to do is we're trying to move finance away from fossil fuels. And mm. to do that, we're targeting pension funds, insurance companies, the banks, but also public finance. So there I can give you one example about the work that we're doing to try to change public finance away from fossil fuels. We have an ongoing court case in Belgium against the mm. National Central Bank of Belgium because of the corporate bonds that they're buying on the capital markets on behalf, essentially, of, of public governments. And they're buying bonds in a way that ultimately is propping up either the fossil fuel industry itself or carbon-intensive companies. And so there, what we're trying to challenge is the way that public finance is continuing to fuel the climate crisis. But we've also done a lot of advocacy around climate finance. So an example I can give you here in the UK, because we're sitting in London today, is, yes. is that we've um, we participated in the work to advocate for a new pensions bill, which is now a pensions act in the UK, and which incorporates the duty on pension funds to disclose their climate exposure. And mm. that obviously is incredibly important because pension funds manage trillions and trillions of assets. So if they disclose how they are exposed to climate risk, that can really move the dial in terms of changing the way that financial markets are either at the moment really creating a barrier to the transition and what we want is for financial markets obviously to to push and encourage the transition towards renewable energy. Yeah. Can I ask you something of a more moral question? Do you think that mm -hmm. this is the way, the only way now to attack the preservation of the climate is to actually make it a financial risk or, or a risk for corporation and governments in general, like as in they don't act upon altruism anymore? I, I think, yes, I would probably characterize that it that way. I think the societies that we've built over the last, you know, few centuries and with an acceleration since the beginning of the Industrial Re Revolution, sorry, are, <laughs> you know, ultimately capitalistic societies. And so if yeah. you don't attack the money, 
really, you can make your voice heard, but you're not sure that you're going to actually get the action that you want to see. So I think it's very important that we move to hold directors of companies, companies and financial institutions responsible for their role in the climate crisis. I would, however, add to that, that um, I don't believe it's only the private sector that needs to move. I think there is still a very important role for governments in setting mm. the pathways to not only to net zero in the in the climate crisis area, but also in terms of protecting nature. I think yeah. that we can't fully rely on the corporate and private actors to make the transition that we want because it is not their role, for instance, to ensure that there's a just transition. That's really not the role of the private sector. So I think it's still important for us as Client Earth and, and other environmental NGOs that work in the law to also hold governments accountable for yeah. their responsibility in fueling the crisis. Absolutely. You have a very long list of experience within legal work, uh, climate and humanitarian and war. And what led you to the specific line of work and what led you to, to come across Client Earth? So I think my journey towards this line of work has been probably two things that have taken me in this direction. One is that I come from a family of refugees, so who had mm. to leave Poland during the Second World War. And I think my personal history has been very much shaped by that narrative and, and the effects and impacts that can have. And second of all, when I was studying at NYU, I did my thesis on the war in Angola. There was a civil war that was fought there after um, mm. Portuguese independence or independence from Portugal, I should say. And it was really fought between diamonds and oil. Who who mm. had the resources was ultimately, you know, able to wage one side of that war. And what really struck me as I wrote that that thesis was how important the rule of law is to determining economic outcomes, actually, and social outcomes and rights outcomes. And if that, that's not present, then, you know, there is nothing to underpin anything to protect citizens and to prevent, actually, civil conflict. So I sort of decided as a result of that to become a lawyer. And I think probably around 2009, when the COP was held in, in Copenhagen, for me, all of those things came together. The degradation that we were starting to see in the environment, the climate crisis accelerating, but also the need to use the law to protect people and to protect people who will be moving as a result of climate change, who will become either internally displaced or refugees if they cross borders. And so I decided that that was really going to be, that was going to shape the rest of my career. Now, at the time I was working in the private sector yeah. <laughs> as a lawyer, and I really started to try very hard from the inside to change the system yeah. and to convince people I worked with at the time that this is something that we should play a part in as lawyers. But being unsuccessful there, I ended up leaving the private sector. And, and that's sort of ultimately what brought me to Client Earth, because Client Earth really obviously puts the law at the center of everything it does. And we're fighting to have a planet that is preserved for its nature, but also its people. Um, and, and I hope that through doing that, you know, we will both save the planet as it is, but save the people who live on it today, but also the children and grandchildren who will come after us. So I think yeah. it's it's all of those journeys that brought me to Client Earth. Yeah, I have to say, I, from the first second I heard about Client Earth and the concept of having the Earth as a client, I completely melted for this idea. And it feels like the one valid way of fighting right now mm. for the preservation of Earth and human rights. It's really interesting your trajectory with it, starting with political science and then choosing law as the tool. 
And it feels like a very proactive way of, of doing the work you do. I was wondering for the specific uh, theme of this podcast, which obviously is on the, the woman and the modernized woman, your work with climate obviously has an impact on human rights and mm-hmm. also specifically on women's rights, even though we should be categorizing them as human rights. You have previously worked for several organizations on women's economic empowerment and economic development. Mm-hmm. What was it that you did back then? So back then, the approach was different. So I was working primarily at the OECD and for a little while as part of an agency that, that's part of the European institutions. And there, the idea was that in a lot of economies, transition economies in Eastern Europe and in North Africa, Maghreb and Mashrek, um, mm. women are part of the labor force. They're part of the labor market. They they own very thriving businesses. But actually underpinning that, there are absolutely no rights. In some cases, they have no rights to have you know bank accounts or property rights. They may be recognized under law, but they're not necessarily enforced. And mm. the the other issue is that, frankly, a lot of these women who are, you know, small or medium or even large business owners with the small and medium ones, they're often in the informal sector. So they have absolutely no protection when it comes to their own wealth creation. And in a way, they're not participating in the wealth creation of their nation either by being in the informal sector. So... There, the work was really about training women so that they could be entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs of tomorrow. And at the time, a lot of that Eastern European work was really in a region that had only 10 years prior come out of of Soviet influence and communism. And so Mm. there, there was a real need to change, I guess, the mindsets to to approaching the private sector and that kind of economic approach differently. And so mm. um, we did a lot of work on that. And we, we did a lot of advice on how we could also change the informal economy in North Africa and the Middle East in order for women to to become business leaders and as a result to have and play a, a greater role even in political life in those countries. I mean, this was in the early 2000s. So I, I should say it was also right after 9-11. Mm. So there was a, a an intent, I think, with the work in, in the Middle East to get women more empowered also for political and for social reasons, as well as for economic reasons. But there it was really, the approach was one of policy advice to, to yeah. ministers. And even that idea of informing them of their legal human rights, is that even a concept that you could work with then? Or was it more of, as you say, shifting the mindset? Um, I mean, the capacity building angle is very, very powerful, yeah. I think. Um, and there, I've come across at various points in my career, you know, people who simply just need to know a little bit more about their rights or about where they can find information about what their rights are and how to enforce them. And that is very, very powerful. And we, I mean... Part of the work that we do at Client Earth is is that as well, is about capacity building. That's brilliant. Um, What I wanted to really have your insight in, you're working with this every day, how is the climate change having an effect on women's rights? I think... That there is a huge concern over the impact of climate change on women's rights. I mean, women make up, and and girls, I should say, make up the bulk of the poor in in today's world. And so Mm. the minute something such as the environment where they get a lot of their, their food, you know, their livelihoods from, when that starts deteriorating, the impact is immediately felt by women. And in the most extreme circumstances, that will mean 
that if there is civil conflict as a result of a scarcity of resources, we know through research and, and unfortunately through um, history that women will be impacted first, for instance, if if in the worst instances it does result in conflict, but equally, if it results in displacement or the need to seek refuge in another country, it is often women and children who have to leave um, mm. because for a variety of reasons, a lot of women across the world are bringing up their children alone and sometimes are left in rural areas, for instance, alone to bring up the children. So if at that point there is a drought or there's a deterioration more generally in environmental conditions, these women will have to set off alone um, for that journey. But even on a very sort of pragmatic level, when there is a drought, and in a lot of sub-Saharan African countries, that is an issue, you know, women mm -hmm. then with climate change and with an increase in the amounts and the lengths of droughts, they need to go further to go get water, for instance. Mm -hmm. And even the journey to go get that water is sometimes a perilous one. So all of these impacts for women are really compounded when, when climate change worsens as it is and as it will continue to. I mean, even if we mitigate, obviously, and decrease greenhouse gas emissions today, we know that the climate change which is locked into the system, is there for decades to come. So we know that women are particularly vulnerable to climate change. And the issue today, still today, unfortunately, is that they are also disempowered when it comes to doing something about it. Often they hold the key in terms of their relationships and their influence on what can be done at the local level, for instance, to adapt to climate change, but they don't necessarily have the corresponding decision-making powers or, and or I should say, the necessary land rights or property rights to make those decisions. So women are really, I see them at the forefront of the fight against climate change. And also I personally see them as, as the key really to the solution because we also know that when women are put into decision-making positions, they often foster peace and collaboration. And so I think that because scarcity of resource will probably lead in a lot of in, in a lot of parts of the world to increased conflict if we put women at the center i think we we start to get a key to the solution to this horrible crisis that we're in and which is which is bad in europe but which is so much worse in in other regions of the world where um where the impacts that are being felt today are already tremendous actually and is there something that you uh, at client earth can do to help push these women to be at the leading roles and top positions? I think that what we can um, do as a fundamentally, you know, legally grounded environmental organization is through capacity building, through mm. workshops and training programs that explain to women what their rights are and how they can enforce them. I think that through doing that on the one level, at the grassroots level, we can start um, to affect change. But we can also help through internship programs, through fellowship programs, through legal clinics, all of these other kinds of mechanisms. We can help, as, as many other organizations do as well, I should say, but to train more lawyers around the world, female lawyers. And um, once that happens, because lawyers also often go into politics or go into becoming members of parliament, I think that that can also create a domino effect, yeah. which leads women to to better positions of power in their own, mm. you know, home countries. And I think that that can really, really trigger change. Have you been there at the ground when you've been leading a workshop and you've been seeing the reactions of women suddenly realizing 
that their rights are the same as men and that they are the ones who are the most exposed for climate change. I personally have not led, some of my colleagues have, have led mm. workshops, for instance, in some of our work in, in West and Central Africa. And I'm, I'm certain that they've seen this kind of a reaction because mm. I've certainly seen it in the past with, with other groups and in other contexts where suddenly unlocking some of these narratives or sometimes telling a story about something that's happened in another country with, for instance, a court case or an organization. Um, I had some students a few years ago from Burma and, and we were purely talking about human rights in Burma without mm. entering sort of the gender debate. But it was really interesting to see their reactions and to for them to better understand what goes on elsewhere, how certain human rights are enforced in other parts of the world. And definitely one witnesses some light bulb moments where people suddenly say, right, I can, I literally understand what we could do when we go home and how we could affect change in our own country. So the hope is that we can continue to do that more and more working with local partners and local universities. I mean, I think we can't do it alone, right? It really needs to mm -hmm. be done with people in country who can offer up their expertise and really relate to people and to lawyers and to and to budding lawyers, you know, young students who really want to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So on the informative level, you're working worldwide to inform women of their human rights. But is there a certain like legal targeting that you are working on within the scope of climate change that would have a sort of domino effect for women's rights? To go back almost to the beginning of our conversation, on the one hand, if states are made accountable for their action on climate change and citizens see that and they understand, you know, through through the media actually what's going on, I think that that can empower women in those countries to, and that can be, you know, anywhere in the world, Poland, you know, as I said at the beginning, we have a case going on in Australia. And I think that that enables women to feel more empowered to have their own voice, maybe to bring other cases as well. I mean, what we're trying to do, because we can't bring every case ourselves, is also to build a movement where other citizens can understand that they can take the law into their own hands as groups or working with NGOs. And so I think that there's something there that's incredibly important and powerful for women. I think that there's also within, for instance, the climate finance arena, if we make more transparent what is going on today with the financial mm -hmm. sector, you know, the lack of transparency over investments. We just launched a case today in France on greenwashing. I think that that also is a tool to make citizens and women more aware of, for instance, the, the fact that they're being misled, that they're being lied to, that when they go purchase certain goods and commodities in their everyday life, that they they are being misled by some of the largest corporate actors in their countries, and actually that they can do something about it, that they can take these corporations, for instance, to court or make complaints about them, or simply as, as consumers really choose no longer to purchase those goods. So I think that yeah. the idea is that through raising awareness, um, we are tackling human rights at large, but we're hoping that as part of that, women feel more and more engaged. And we know that women are, you know, statistically more worried about climate change than men. And yeah. through through polling, that really comes out very strongly. So in a way, whatever work we do is probably going to resonate more with women.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I saw that you managed to sue BP for greenwashing, yes. right? Yes, yes. So we, we started that work two years ago. And as a result, so we've continued the work and we've continued the research. And that's why today in France, an action was launched against Total, which we are supporting. And essentially to, you know, to bring to light the fact that these corporate net zero pledges are completely misleading consumers because oil and gas companies such as Total are continuing to say that they're going to be net zero by 2050 while in fact increasing their investments in oil and gas, mm. which, you know, is impossible. <laughs> it's just a, a circle that one, you know, can't square. So we are trying to make that obvious because I think we think that's a very powerful tool to get consumers engaged in, yeah. in the law and what they can do about it. Absolutely. Well, this interview will be released on uh, International Women's Day. Uh, and I thought that there was no better timing than to release this with you because of the work that you're doing for Mother Earth, our ultimate, <laughs> <laughs> our, our ultimate mother, and also obviously the work that is linked with the women's rights. And I wanted, I wanted to ask you if you would like to highlight something that you've seen as a progress in women's rights the the last few years give people some hope <laughs> that is a excellent question i mean i think that we are in some parts of the world seeing an advance for women's education because fundamentally i think getting more girls into school is really the way forward for humanity not not only when it you know relates to environment but really for everything so i think mm. The work that NGOs, but also the United Nations and some governments are doing to bring more girls into school, it's essential and it's very encouraging. Um, at the same time, I have to say that over the last six months, for instance, seeing, you know, the withdrawal of, of troops in Afghanistan and the... Um, you know, the fact that there are countries in which we have seen advancement of human women's rights and... 
that it is backtracking. I think it means that we as women need to continue to fight to see this happen. Mm. I mean, I think that there are some encouraging signs in pockets of the world. And we do see more and more female leaders, more female heads of state, more corporate leaders. It, it is happening, mm. but it still remains quite on the minimal, I think, side of what we could be seeing in terms of real gender equality when it comes to decision-making and to driving political processes. So I guess there are some encouraging signs, but I think as women, we need to continue to, to, to fight for it, really. I mean, to fight for girls everywhere around the world to go to school yeah. because that unlocks such a powerful ripple of change or wave of change. It's just so, so important. Yeah. And we need to continue to hold our own leaders to account for that because we have such an influence in Europe, for instance, in the, in the United States through our development programs and our aid programs to ensure that female education is, is absolutely centered to that. Absolutely. If, if you would have to choose, I know that you're within so many different fields of um, preservation and trying to attack everyone and holding everyone accountable, but <laughs> if there would be one area of climate change that you would focus on and one area on uh, women's rights that you would focus on right now in parallel, what would you choose as the most urgent need? I think if I think of those two things combined and how intricately linked they can be, it would probably be around, you know, the production of food around the world, food systems, mm. because women are are farmers. They are the people who are sustaining livelihoods around the world. And whether that is through management of forests across the world in, in places like Western Central Africa, but also in Latin America and in Southeast Asia. And generally, they are propping up the, the food mm. system, but at this sort of small scale level, not the big industrial sort of agricultural um, food level. So I think that we need to tackle both of those levels in the food system. But the one which is one of the sort of small scale farming is absolutely essential to enable women to continue to be able to live off agriculture, to live sustainable, healthy, you know, protected lives. So I think that yeah. the just transition in the food system to enable women to continue to to thrive is is incredibly important in this sort of context of thinking about gender rights and climate change. Yeah. And out of a from a from a climate perspective would that be agriculture with re regenerative farming or biodynamic farming? I think it would be I mean in large part it means moving away from what we today cultivate in terms of mainly our, our meat-based um, systems. Mm. The cattle farming itself has an impact on, on the environment, but also the food that we need to grow in order mm. to then feed the animals should be at this sort of at the center of the, of the fight. And then thinking about ways to make, without completely eliminating that agriculture, but as you say, making it regenerative and ensuring that, you know, there is a way to sustainably still have a certain amount of meat production. I mean, there is a level that is sustainable and, and yes. how can we make that happen in different parts of the world so that also people can continue to, to make their livelihoods from farming because otherwise yeah. I think the impacts could be incredibly severe of, uh, of people losing the way that they make their income. So I think, I think the food system is, is key and um, in combating climate change. We know that, but also in ensuring that women can continue to work and, um, and have an income but it has to be the right kind of food system.
What could a person who is unfamiliar with the legal side of things do to help the work that you do? I think that, you know, even by tuning into this podcast, I'm hoping that... Um, Uh, that listeners will have been interested in hearing the story, might want to go and and look at our website, look at our stories. And I mean, there is a way of supporting us, which is just sharing our story through social media, talking about it, making client earth, but also other, you know, I, I should mention that we are one of many organizations doing this work around the world, right? And mm. so I think that just people familiarizing themselves and also sharing these stories is is one tool It's also by contributing financially. I mean, there is so much work to be done. <laughs> it's just, it's an, in, it's almost feels on some days like an insurmountable task. So for us to get more funding, to be able to have more lawyers, but also to train, as we were sort of saying earlier on in the conversation, have money to build capacity in other countries, fund people so that they can go study law, for instance, practice law. I mean, that that is something that I think has tremendous potential in which people can do without necessarily being lawyers or getting involved in the work. They can support us um, financially. But also, I think, questioning the bank that you use, for instance, you know, um, where wow. your pension fund is invested, because those are things that you can do without being a lawyer, without taking anyone to court, But questioning how the financial system, which we all participate in, is fueling the crisis. And that I think we can all do um, every time we pay with our credit card or every time we contribute to our pension fund, you know, when our salary comes in or something like that. I think those are things that we can very easily do. And there's a lot of information available now about that, about what we can do and what we can ask from our banks and our pension funds. I mean, that's, mm. it's, a, it's a tremendous tool to unlock change. That's a great tip and something a lot of people should have a look at because mm. it's not just about stop eating meat or stop traveling or buying an extra tree when you travel. There's so many aspects you could attack. Yes. This one is very good, I think. And actually our money is so, today it's so dematerialized that we don't realize, I think, mm. physically that actually it's going sometimes to prop up, you know, oil exploration in the Arctic and things like yeah. that. It's it's not immediately there, but it's it's actually a very powerful tool. So yeah. changing banks, changing pension funds, things like that. Obviously, we are living a hard moment right now with Ukraine. It's obviously got nothing to do right now with what we're talking about, but it's unavoidable because it's happening right now. What is your take right now of the situation and what, what can be done to help Obviously, again, a lot of women fleeing with their children as well, but everyone's fleeing and it's um, chaos. What can be done there right now? Have you thought about it? We have as an organization, yes. Mm. Um, we have because we are all deeply shocked by what's happening. I would say particularly because we have an office in Poland, Polish mm. colleagues who are very, very close to what is happening and and who are seeing some of those immediate impacts and arrivals of refugees in Poland. So we've had over the last week, many, many conversations internally about what we can do. What we have done internally is share resources about what organizations we individually can give to, how we can help. Um, so there have been numerous, I'd say, reactions to, mm. to the horror and the bloodshed that we're seeing. And It certainly appears, and and I'm going to be cautious when I say this, but but that again, um, it is a lot of women and children who are having to flee where they where they currently have their their homes. And so, mm. just speaking to an organization in in London yesterday who is 
collecting some goods to, to take to Ukraine. They are essentially collecting medicine, but also baby food, because as is often the case, it's women with young children who find themselves yeah. just on the road, out on the street. So I think there are a lot of resources out there and a lot of organizations, both international ones, I would say, as well as very local ones that we can all choose to, to support on a sort of individual, personal basis. Absolutely. Is there a certain message you want to get out to listeners on the day of International Women's Day? And in my opinion, the the day of Earth should be every day and the day of human <laughs> rights should be every day and the women's rights should be every day. But since, you know, we are celebrating International Women's Day, is there something you'd like to get out there? I mean, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of these things being something that we should look to and think about as we wake up every day. I do think that women are the key to peace and as and they are a key to unlocking the end of the crisis that we're seeing. I really, really believe that if we can get enough women interested in this issue and combating it either as lawyers but also as engineers and you know people who come up with incredible innovations, educators, I mean, I think everybody has a different role to play, but I think if we get an army of women to do that around the world, we will make sure that this crisis does not continue beyond, as, as I was saying before, we know that we will see some consequences over the next few decades. But I think yeah. that if we have a sufficient number of women who are interested and are in a sort of decision-making position anywhere in the world, that is the key for us to be optimistic, I think, about what we can do. Yeah. And I think women have a central role to play and they should feel confident and proud to play that role. I am very much of the take and, and throughout this podcast, I am very much exploring the modern womanhood, but I'm as much bringing in the modern man in this podcast, mm -hmm. because there's, there's nothing in this podcast that uh, excludes the man. On the contrary, I think that together we rise for a better future, for a better preservation of the earth and human rights. Mm -hmm. So I think today, uh, women's rights or Women's International Day, I think also I know so many men that rise to this day as well and rise with women. And I, I would like to think that it's about a female energy uh, rather than women rising together, even though women do need to, because in so many parts of the world, they still have not been able to rise. But for the people listening, it will pro probably be a few men that are in tune with what we're talking about. <laughs> So I'd like to shout out to you as well. Thank you for being there. Thank you for rising with us. And, and please continue to rise with us so that we can, we can find peace. Well said. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Christina. I know that you have uh, another decade to talk about what you do. And we only have a few <laughs> minutes left. Um, I've been following your work prior to this interview. If you listeners are interested, please look at Client Earth and Christina's work and what she's up to. There are quite a few interesting uh, legal cases there that, that got me going. Happy International Women's Day. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us and, and enabling me to tell you about our work. It's really an honor for me too. Subscribe to the Modern Madonnas podcast and follow us on Instagram for more stories about modern womanhood. Thank you for listening. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.